welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for joining us. Now off <laughs> mute, it's Brian <laughs> right. Hefty. <laughs> All right, so we're happy that you are here with us today. We're going to be talking a little about corn herbicides. We're live in the Morton studio. And we'll be taking your phone calls throughout the show as well. If you'd like to give us a call, the number is 844-44-AG-PHD. You could also email us, radio at agphd.com. We're going to get to the Ag PhD mailbag in just a minute here because we have been getting so many questions in, and I want to make sure we get that addressed. But our topic today is corn herbicides. And so just a couple of real quick things to start you out here. We're very big believers in two things with corn herbicides. One, use multiple effective modes of action. So if you've got a weed that is your big weed problem, we want you to use two effective modes of action. So at least, hopefully, you can get all those weeds under control. And number two, we are huge believers in use a pre-emerge herbicide and a post-emerge herbicide. When you just try to get by with one-shot pre or one-shot post, I mean, I'm not going to say you can't do it because you can, but our concern is always, are you going to get the best yield and are you going to have the best weed control? Because if you don't have the yield, well, obviously you can afford to do more things. And if you don't have the best weed control, well, then it's going to end up costing you more down the road. So we just have a lot of concerns there if you try one shot. But anyway, again, we prefer two shots and we really prefer seeing multiple effective modes of action on your main target weeds. All right, so again, we'll talk more about corn herbicides as we go throughout the show today. Right now, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's now mailbag time with Brian and Darren. All right, Brian, first question comes in. We got some soil samples here. This one is Eric. He said, I've got this um, 135-acre field. And I've been farming it the last three years. Doing okay, but I want to make my soils better. Uh, took your soils classes, went to Neil Kinsey soil classes. Uh, obviously, there's still a lot to, to think about here and what I should be focusing on. So I'm doing a corn-soybean rotation. And in my latest soil samples, getting ready for corn here next year, I think I need for sure additional nitrogen. I'm shooting for 200 bushel corn. And I need phosphorus on zone 11. And I think I should get boron and copper levels up on everything else. Anything more that I'm I should be looking at, or would those be the first areas you'd focus on too? Okay, so he sent us four different soil tests, and it, it, I'll I'll try to make this as simple and concise as possible. He's got varying soils, as we often talk about here in the show, everywhere from as high as twenty-seven cation exchange capacity, so that's pretty heavy ground down to 13 cation exchange capacity. So in our region, most people would call that sandy. (laughs) So for you, that might be heavy ground. And that's the reason why we like seeing the cation exchange capacity tests. We're all on the same page here. But 13 without irrigation um, and where he's located at in north central South Dakota, that's that ground is going to be, it's just going to be questionable if you can raise fantastic yield year in and year out. So other than that, I I just say I'm very pleased with the potassium levels, Darren. I almost never say that, but for for him, he's got a minimum of 5.3% base saturation K and as high as 7.8. So perfect levels on K. I love that. 
And, and again, we just don't see that very often. And actually, on the phosphorus levels, yeah, he's right. There, I mean, he's got some areas, not too bad. 69 on an Olsen test, that's real good. That would equate to most likely over 100 on a, on a Malik test, a Malik 3 test. So I love that. But yeah, when he's got four parts per million and 17 parts per million of phosphorus in other areas, um, yeah, that's not good. That Those are those are the main things. It's, it's always N, P, and K. And so, yeah, with nitrogen... You're going to need more. There isn't much in your soil. You've got some, but you know we're we're not talking about a whole lot of nitrogen there. In a lot of cases, uh, let's see, we got 23, 25, 48 pounds. So what if you have a crop, wheat, corn, anything that needs nitrogen, you got to throw more out there. Beyond that, we're always going to be talking a little about sulfur and micronutrients. Your sulfur levels are actually pretty decent. Um, it's the micronutrients that you want to be starting to take a look at a little harder when we see boron levels at 0.3, zinc levels at 0.7, uh, copper levels at 0.8. Those are all real low, and odds are they're all negatively impacting your yield. You don't have to spend a lot of money. I'm not saying go nuts, but get a few micronutrients out there. That'd be the other thing that I would add to his comments from earlier. All right. Uh, thanks for the question. We appreciate that. Uh, I got a picture that got sent in um this one's from jabril he said hey guys i've got a problem with my soil it doesn't produce crops <laughs> i mean if i plant or drill a crop in it just becomes yellow and dies this uh, uh is tough because i can't get this tested where i'm located labs just aren't very accurate and i can't get tile in the ground because there really isn't tiling equipment uh, where i live the option for water is flood irrigation and then drain it out can you give me any solution with the conditions I've got? Okay, well, I yeah, I, I need to see a soil test to know for sure. But as I look at it, unless this is snow, Darren, uh, it it's certainly looks right. Right, <laughs> it certainly looks like we've got a massive sodium issue and possibly lots of salt problems too. So this is most likely a sodic soil really, really high in sodium. In order to fix that, you got to put tile in the ground, you got to put a whole bunch of sulfur on, and you got to start flushing that stuff out over time. And you want to try to get something growing in there. Barley's probably the most tolerant crop to a condition like that. But if you can't put tile in, honestly, I'm probably just going to turn it to grass. All right. Uh, thanks for the question. I get this one that came in uh, saying, I've got magnesium levels that are high. And gypsum is very difficult to get in our area. What other strategies could help deal with high magnesium? Sulfur. You just put excess sulfur, out, extra sulfur out there, and that will flush your magnesium out. But do you really have excess magnesium? I'd like to see your soil tests. And before I go spending the money on, on all that sulfur, I would fix every other nutrient. P, K, nitrogen boron copper manganese everything else you've got hope that you can raise as great a crop as possible and maybe you don't need to do so much adjustment on the magnesium but again send us some soil tests and we can give you some more concrete answers stay tuned we'll be right back take your tillage to the next level with the insight universal tillage tool from mcfarland ag with more adjustability and flexibility the insight is the ultimate one pass tillage tool visit mcfarlandag.com to find your closest dealer Join us in Houston for Commodity Classic, America's largest farmer-led, farmer-focused agricultural and educational event, New Frontiers in Agriculture, February 28th through March 2nd, 2024. Houston, we have no problem. 
The greatest herbicide of all time earned its title by defending your soybean fields. Authority Supreme Herbicide's low-use rate formula delivers longer-lasting control of broadleaf weeds and grasses, providing you with the best-in-class combination of Group 14 PPO herbicide sulfentrazone and Class 15 molecule pyroxysulfone that outlasts the competition. We're Authority Supreme Herbicide from FMC, and we play to win. Learn more at authoritysupreme.ag.fmc.com. Always read and follow all label directions. Get the most from every acre on your farm by attending Ag PhD's workshops and clinics this winter. I'm Darren Hefty. My brother Brian and I are hosting several free workshops throughout January and February, including agronomy workshops in corn and soybeans, a soils clinic, and a whole day devoted to natural and biological products. We have a lot of great information and we can't wait to share it with you. Best of all, these events are free, so be sure to check them out. Register today at agphd.com. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Listening to Ag PhD Radio, we're broadcasting from the Morton studio, and our topic today: corn herbicides. I'm amazed how many farmers I've talked to already this fall and early winter who said, "You know, I thought I was struggling with weed control in soybeans, but this year the corn was tough too. We had some things get through our program, so that'd be a great time as you're thinking about prepay, very likely, to start talking about some of these corn herbicide programs and what could." do a better job for you on certain weeds next year. Got Ron Geis with us right now. He works with Corteva. Ron, how you doing? Doing good, Darren. How are you? Good. Well, I just had this question today, Ron, and it was, man, I've got grass that's getting through my corn herbicide program, and it's mainly foxtails. And I said, wow, and Roundup didn't clean it up? And the follow-up, of course, was, well... It's actually conventional corn. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Ah, okay. 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 So conventional corn, a little different than uh, in Roundup Ready corn where you've got the option of coming back with Roundup for that grass. But what have you seen over the years around with grass control? Do you get those questions very often or is it mostly broadleaves? <laughs> well, I'm going to say for the last 20 years we haven't had those questions very often uh, because of Roundup being able to clean things up. But So let's rewind the clock 20 years ago and how did we deal with grass back then? Uh, if you're in conventional, but even if you're in Roundup corn, there's still the, the answer is about the same. Go back into the late 90s, and we were using full registered rates of those soil residual herbicides. And Roundup came along. We cut those rates either down to zero or half a rate at the most. And it's funny, Darren, now that a number of farmers, I'll recommend they use full rates, and, and they'll say, well, I've been using full rates. Well, what rate? And they'll tell me the rate and it's half of what the full rate is, is labeled. We've just readopted our mind thinking that what I'm using is the full rate. Well, it's not. Look, look and see what the label says on the products that you're using, and it's probably not the full rate. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Well, uh, if we can just up the rate on those group 15s, generally we do pretty good on 
foxtail species. If there's some other problem weeds, you may have to uh, work on that two-pass program again to, to really knock them out. How about on the broadleaf side, Ron? Like you said, uh, lately, the last 20 years here, it's been pigweed, kochia, burr cucumber, uh, just a number of different tough broadleaf weeds to get. Yeah. So it all spells to, I'm going to say, a, a three-step process. Step number one is start clean. Well, let's not take that for granted. Um, I'm thinking back on some of those drier springs, like 2012, 2011, 2012, 2013. We went out there with our tillage pass and did not kill the weeds in the tillage, especially when you talk weeds like kochia or some ragweeds that are up early in the season or lamb's quarters. If you don't kill those off with the tillage, then you didn't start clean, and the residual herbicide generally is not going to kill those weeds that are there. So you're two steps behind before you've even started. So start clean. And then come in with your uh, full rate of your residual pre-emerge. And, uh, and then usually the end of May, 1st of June, uh, more so towards the end of May, uh, come in with that post-emerge application and make sure that post-treatment also has residual control with it so that it extends the residual life into canopy closure time. You know, that's been one of the big things, I think, in my career that has really changed the game, putting more residual out there with the post-emerge application. You know, yeah, there's a little bit of residual out of a dicamba or, or something like that, but uh, putting a, another rate of a group 15, for example, that's going to carry you through uh, until you get good crop canopy, that, that really has helped. Yeah, I think uh, we as a chemical industry have kind of realized that. We came out with products that contain that post-emerge residual. I, you know, I think Resicor would be a real good example where the acetochlor kind of designed to use post-emerge. They, I mean, you can use it pre or post, but it gives a nice uh, residual uh, layer to go out there later in the season to keep things uh, clean longer. And boy, we sure talk a lot now in soybeans about doing the same thing, but you know that that's only been happening last seven or eight years. Right, right. Yeah, it, it, it's really important to adapt your practices to what's going on. And I know for farmers who have changed what they're doing for tillage practices, for example, they see some different mm-hmm. weeds out there, and a lot of times it, it means you need to have some different strategies for controlling them. What do you see in the no-till? What do you see in the cover crop fields? What are some of the problems that, that maybe guys are starting to run into now in the last couple of years that they haven't run into before? You know, I do like the what benefits the cover crop or having having a, a residue mat out there does as far as keeps the soil cooler and, and sort of slows down the emergence of some of these weeds. I like to compare it to uh, people that raise tomatoes. Well, most people raise tomatoes, they'll throw a layer of uh, grass clippings around their tomatoes. Well, why are you doing that? Well, to preserve moisture and keep the weeds out. We can do the same thing, raise up a cover crop, you know, let it get a little size, and then kill it off prior to planting. But we also have a built-in potential problem there. If it gets too rank, uh, it could interfere with your planting operation. Um, or it could, could you know, kind of uh, work against your ability to get a, a stand, particularly in corn. So you've you got you know, you to understand the benefits and the, and the detriments with each. Uh, but those cover crops will hold some of your winter annual weeds back. I think we've also seen a little bit of a move uh, towards some fall applications for uh, winter annual weed control so you're able to start clean. Um, all those things you know, are going to help uh, get you off on the right foot so that we're not completely relying on that spring residual herbicide. 
and let's not also forget, and I, I heard a, your earlier comments about um, as we started uh, this this or got to harvest this year, uh, we're seeing more weeds in the corn. Well, think back. Uh, when did I apply my residual herbicide, and how much rain got on that residual herbicide? Many times the answer was not very much or none. And then how much when I applied my post that contained residual, how much of that got rained in and my residual kicked in? And again, the answer, unfortunately, this year in a lot of cases was none or very little. Uh, and, and moisture is necessary to keep those herbicides active and get them into the plants. Just having them on the field isn't going to stop a weed, but it's having it in the soil solution is what's going to stop those weeds. Yeah, that is a great point. We're talking with Ron Geis here with Corteva, and I know we sure saw it too, guys that pushed their application dates up a little bit more, going out there just a little earlier than they normally would do it, uh, had better results because you had more time to catch the rain, to get it into yeah. the soil solution and kill those weeds. Hey, Ron, thank you so much. Great tips as always. We really appreciate it. You bet. We'll talk to you later, Aaron. Thanks. We've got Lily Zemer with us right now with FMC. We're talking corn herbicides. Lily, how are you doing today? Oh, not too bad. Every day is a good day in Nebraska here, especially when we got some warm weather today. So Yeah, warm is good. Getting a little bit of moisture, like Ron was saying, to make everything work better. I like that, too. I wish we could just dial that up when we needed it. Yeah, no kidding. All right, so uh, give us a couple tips here on corn herbicides as we're making those choices here uh, this prepay season. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a good topic of mind. You know, folks are trying to make those decisions this time of year. And, you know, when we think about this next coming year, we always like to take a second, you know, think about not only last year, but some of the years in the past. And um, we're thinking about corn herbicides. You know, um, we've already had these discussions about um, getting getting our herbicides activated, but, you know, also using multiple modes of action in the tank. And, you know, when we think about our FMC products like Anthem Max, um, we also like to have that burn down activity added in there. So with a product like Anthem Max, you know, we're getting our longest residual group 15 out there, um, putting our best foot forward, but we're also making sure that we're having that tank mix um, with uh, another burn down product um, that adds to that group 15 or group 14 cadet um, that we have as a component of Anthem Max. So, you know, this time of the year, we're seeing those winter annual weeds coming up, and it just kind of makes you think about what are some things that we can think about moving forward in the springtime, uh, making sure we have that good burn down activity with the product, you know, like Anthem Max, and also making sure we get a good residual out there as well. Yeah, it's it's important not to just rely on one mode of action or one application. We sure like the, the two-pass approach. We sure like being proactive on these things. And like you mentioned, we've got to have these residuals activated. I know for uh, growers, especially uh, like in your territory, you start talking about western Nebraska out into Colorado, it doesn't rain nearly as often as growers would like. So getting those things done a little yep. bit early is important. And speaking about early, Lily, one of the things I just want to say thanks for, we let you run uh, with that FMC is doing is their, their financing offer this year. It's just fantastic. 0% financing and you can lock in products right now at prepay prices. What a great deal for the grower. Thanks. Thanks to you. And thanks to everybody at FMC for that too, Lily. Yep, yep, yep. No, that's a really great program, and we're really excited to offer that to growers, um, you know, this time of the year. And thinking about dollars isn't always fun, but being able no. to have a good program out there for them to take advantage of is really great. You bet. Zero percent's awesome. Hey, thanks, Lily. There's an innovative new soybean herbicide on the market that's helping close the door on weed resistance and open new doors to productivity. 
Preview 2.1 SC herbicide from UPL is a multi-mode of action pre-emergent that controls the most resistant broadleaf weeds at the beginning of the season and continues to control later weeds with strong residual activity. Ask your retailer about Preview 2.1 herbicide from UPL and always read and follow label directions. Control the toughest weeds with overlapping residuals. Lock in the longest lasting control for your soybean fields. A pre-emergence application of an authority brand herbicide plus a post application of Anthem Max herbicide establishes the overlapping residual control key to safeguarding your soybean seasons. This pairing is a heavy duty economical strategy against Palmer Amaranth, Waterhemp, Kosha, and more. Visit your FMC retailer or lockin.ag.fmc.com today. Always read and follow all label directions. This season, get medieval on Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia fungicide from Valent USA. Here to shield your sugar beets from the treachery of Rhizoctonia, Excalia delivers excellent staying power, keeping your sugar beets from being conquered. Stay one step ahead of Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia. Ask your retailer or visit valent.com slash Excalia to learn more. Always read and follow label instructions. Effortlessly manage your farm fertility with Verify. Verify takes yield data directly from your combine and instantly generates variable rate fertility maps based on your nutritional goals. Whether it's building soil, balancing nutrition, or maintaining fertility. And with full integration with John Deere Operations Center, Verify can send recommendations directly to application equipment, no matter the color. Join Verify today at Verify.com and keep your farm moving. It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get out of it depends on what you put in. And Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutricia and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. My mom's got a new case IH tractor and it can do it all. Bail hay all day. See in the dark with its powerful LED lights. Hook up all the implements. Shift like a race car, steer with ease. And it can also cool my juice box. Yeah, her case IH tractor can do everything she needs it to. Looking for a tractor that can do it all? Check out caseih.com. listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're broadcasting from the Morton studio talking about corn herbicides. And I know a lot of folks say, wait, wait, what about the corn? Uh, you always talk about beans. We're, we're hitting the corn today. And we're going to talk about some of the tough weeds to control and some strategies that could help you do that. And of course, we'll keep our phone lines open, 844-44-AG-PHD. We'll head down to Georgia next. Uh, get our friend Eric Prostko down there with the University of Georgia. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are y'all doing today? We're doing we're doing pretty good. Uh, I was saying to start the show off, I've had a surprising number of calls this year of guys that said, you know, weed control on soybeans is one thing. It's a challenge every year. But corn this year was tougher. We didn't get the timely rains. Herbicides didn't get activated, these types of things, and some weeds snuck through. Did you guys have issues down there? I know you had a pretty nice growing season in Georgia for the most part. Well, we did. We're a little bit luckier than as far as corn goes. 
we have about 75 to 80 percent of our corn is irrigated. And so we can make herbicides work most of the time, or residual herbicides work because we have the luxury of irrigation. Of course, there are dry land fields, and that's always an issue, but we can get around some of the problems that other states don't have with uh, herbicide activation because of our, our ability to irrigate. So uh, gen- generally, I would say things were, were pretty good. We always have problems. You know, morning glory is always a pain in the, you know what, and Texas millet or Texas panicum is always a pain. But we uh, generally we're doing a reasonable job of controlling pigweed. And the nice thing about us for corn is it makes a nice rotation for our other big row crops, cotton and peanuts, so we can get some modes of action in the corn that help us in our rotational crops. Talk to us about the group 15s. We, we see them becoming popular, more popular in the soybeans now, too. Are they still a, a big player for you in corn? And if they, so, they, what do you count on them for? Well, they, they sure are, right? And if you look at the list, there's about five. You've got the dual products. And, you know, and I'm going to mention the brand names, and we know there's a ton of generics, so I'm not discounting them. But dual, Mag, dual Magnum, Warren, Outlook, Zidua. Uh, Anthem Flex, you know, those are the ones that you know, are sold in our area, and they are bringing to the table several things. First, they, they do very good on pigweed control, and they also provide annual grass control. And so those are the main, and, and some of them also work very well on yellow nutsedge. And so depending on the scenario, you know, that's what we're getting out of uh, the Group 15s. Of course, the driver weed in a lot of cases is Palmer. But uh, we've been able to manage Palmer pretty well in corn because of the diversity of uh, modes of action that we have and the, the lack of resistance, for example, in H- right now that we don't have for HPPD herbicides. All right. You mentioned morning glory. Is there anything mm-hmm. that you're putting out pre that you'd say, man, this is a noticeable difference if I put this out pre? Well, no. The, prob- the problem that we have is that we plant so early, right? We're planting in late February, March, right? So we're planting early, and morning glory tends to be a later emerger. And so a lot of times by the time we're getting some early morning glory control from, say, atrazine, but for us, atrazine doesn't last more than about 8 to 10 weeks in the soil. So we tend to get later flushes, and the problem is we don't have something that lasts all that long. So it's a struggle for us in the southeast to get a full-season control of morning glory. How about row spacing? Can you go to narrow rows? Can you choke it out that way with higher populations, narrow rows, those types of things? That early planting might well, give you a head start anyway. Yeah, well, you know, I think if you look at the row spacing effect collectively, you know, you you tend to see better weed control as you go to a narrow row. But when your culture is built on a wider row for cotton and peanuts, let's say 36 inches, you know, your other crops that we grow, we're going to probably be planting in those. We do have some twin row corn, and we have some narrow, you know, there are people planting in 30 inches and, and maybe 15 inches, but a lot of our corn is still planted in that, say, 36-inch range just because of what's going on with our cotton and peanut rotations. But it's getting easier now with the newer planters to change rows and things like that. I'm a, I'm a huge uh, fan of narrower rows when we can make it work at the farm level, not going out and getting another planter or adapting the planters that you have to, to plant narrow or row. Have you got to look at any exciting new products like Certain, for example, that's going to have the encapsulated Sharpen? Have you got to play with that at all? I, I have not played. I have had the opportunity to look at some of the ones I hear you guys talk about all the time, like Resicore 
and uh, let's see, there's you know Cairo and um, oh, it's a long Maverick. List. <laughs> yeah. Right, there's a long list of materials that are kind of getting dropped on the ball, and 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 they uh, they all do pretty well in our in our area. But a lot of those contain the clopyrrolid product, and you know, for us in the southeast, I'm still wrestling with how the clopyrrolid addition in some of these products works but don't get me wrong when i spray them in our research trials hey they look great um but we also got to think about the cost of weed control sometimes our corn growers are a little reluctant to spend more money on corn even though our research shows that if you don't control weeds it costs a lot of money yeah how about timing i know you've also had some research showing earlier is better if you can get out there when the plant's really small you got the maximum potential for yield yeah, I think if well, I think if you talk to any weed scientist, what's the probably the number one thing that everybody agrees on is this timing is probably the most important thing. We can get out there earlier and spray weeds when they're small. We're going to control them most of the time unless there's some environmental factor going on that's affecting the way that the plant takes up the herbicide. But you know, if we're going to get out there and the weeds are three inches or less, man, we're going to most of the time we're going to do a great job as they start getting bigger that's when we start seeing more problems. And then when you tack on weather issues, water volume, uh, nozzle type, all those other things that we do for spray start to be more of a factor uh, when, we, when we get weeds that get above the ideal size of application. So t- typically I'm, I'm getting our, trying to get our guys to spray around that V, somewhere in that V3 to V5 stage and hitting it in that stage and giving them a target. So once they plant, they can kind of get that in their mind that they need to be back in the field at that time yep i love it i love it getting out there earlier Mm -hmm. getting smaller weeds with less growing points on them much easier to kill and and much higher level of success and and then when you're driving i'm I'm gonna assume up your way we're driving like uh warp speed in a lot of play times right so uh like the starship enterprise so uh, you know as they get bigger i think all those things you know when we get bigger weeds all these little things that we're doing that you don't tend to have a problem weeds are small you you might they might influence you might get a notch down or something because of the weed size and uh, you know how fast you're going or whatever else you might be doing that you don't see at a smaller weed stage yeah yeah it sure helps to get out there early no doubt about it mm-hmm. we're talking with eric prosco here down at university of georgia eric thank you so much we really appreciate having you on look forward to talking to you again down the road hey thank you very much and uh, have a merry christmas you bet merry christmas to you as well All right, last couple things I wanted to throw in on this corn herbicide discussion. Number one is this HPPD resistance. I am concerned about that. That's that's why earlier in the show I said use two effective modes of action. So if all you've got to kill your water hemp or kochia or lamb's quarters or something is an HPPD, like Callisto, Laudus, Impact, Armazon, any of those kind of things, that's not enough in my book because we're seeing we're starting to see what we believe is HPPD resistance in some of these weeds out there, especially water hemp. So have something else that will also get that under control, whether it's a pre-emerge herbicide, a post you throw in, anything. And also, a lot of people, here's my second point. A lot of people over the last couple of years had taken Roundup out of their post-emerge spray mix. It's time to put it back in. If you've got Roundup-ready corn, keep the Roundup in there and use a full rate. I know a lot of people are telling you that, oh, Roundup doesn't kill weeds anymore. Yeah, that's not true. Roundup kills almost every weed out there. And even these weeds where guys say, nope, it's absolutely resistant. I'm like, really? When I go spray it and it's 
a quarter of an inch tall, we're actually getting some control. I'm not saying it's going to be perfect. There is tolerance for sure. But my point here is if I've got the Roundup in there plus some other herbicides, the Roundup's helping. And the Roundup definitely is going to control weeds like grasses, a lot of the annual grasses, that you've got to get stopped in corn. So if you're using a pre and then you follow with a post mix, uh, you yeah, you've got your pre out there that does okay on the grass, maybe gets 90, 95% of it. But boy, it's nice having that Roundup there to clean it up because Roundup is the best grass herbicide that there is. And it still kills an awful lot of broadleaves and helps kill a lot of broadleaves with these other products as well. All right, we're going to get back to the Ag PhD mailbag right after this. The hard-working, independent spirit of rural America can often be isolating. It's not often discussed, but mental health issues are real. Now's the time to lead by example, talk openly, and show that a strong mind is just as important as a strong body. FMC is proud to be working toward ending the misconceptions around mental health. Through awareness, guidance, and action, together we can uproot the stigma. Insects have reigned since the dawn of time. Adapted to their surroundings, experience the harshest climates and toughest challenges until now. With two modes of action, Ridgeback Insecticide delivers one devastating outcome for soybean aphids, extinction from your fields. They may have lived through it all, but they won't survive this. End soybean aphids reign at ridgeback.corteva.us. Morton Buildings has served the American farmer for more than 120 years. From manufacturing our own building components to constructing your building, Morton takes pride in being the industry leader in post-frame construction by providing a quality building and exceptional customer service. A Morton is built to last for generations. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com. If you understood everything on a soil test and could make your own fertility plans, do you think you could cut your farm's fertility expenses, maybe even increase your yields? Hi, I'm Darren Hefty. We want to empower you to make your own fertility decisions. That's why we're holding our Ag PhD Soils Clinic on Tuesday, January 16th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. This could be the single most important day you spend in your farming career, and it's free. So register now at agphd.com. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. Improve germination in your fields with the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Our unique spike design seals your seed within a firm vein of soil, providing maximum seed-to-soil contact and maximum germination. Order a set for your planter at farmshopmfg.com. Win the war against weeds in your soybean fields with fierce herbicides from Valent USA. With three different formulations and multiple modes of action, you're sure to find the right fierce product to protect your operation from tough weeds like Palmer Amaranth and Waterhemp. Give your soybeans a strong, clean start with up to eight weeks of residual control with the powerful pre-emergence protection of Fierce Herbicide. Ask your local retailer or visit valent.com fierce to find the right Fierce formulation for you. Always read and follow label instructions.
Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, along with my brother Darren. We are live in the Morton studio. We've been talking about corn herbicides, but if you've got questions about that or anything going on in your farm, you can give us a call here, 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743, or send us an email, radio at agphd.com. All right, let's get back into the Ag PhD mailbag. What you got next there, Darren? A little map versus DAP question for you. Uh, so this one comes from Michael over in East Central Iowa. He said, I haven't yet applied my fall PNK, and I was just told by my supplier they're going to be using DAP this year as opposed to MAP that they've used in the past. And they gave me some reasons why. One, it's cheaper. Two, something about higher pH levels with DAP and less need for lime. And three, well, they can get DAP. And MAP's not very available. So I'm sure number one, cheaper, and number three, availability, have the most to do with it. But, right. Uh, what are the pros and cons of using MAP versus DAP? All right. The MAP is going to have just a little bit more phosphorus in there, and that's the thing that I always like. So 11520 is the MAP. 18460 is the DAP. So personally, I want a little more phosphorus, but yeah, I mean, you're going to get a little more nitrogen with that DAP, and so it's really not that big a deal either way. Yes, they're right about this high pH thing. I wouldn't go so far as to say, well, you don't need lime because you're putting on DAP. Uh, No, (laughs) it's a minor, minor, minor deal. Uh, But yeah, the DAP is going to be higher in pH, the MAP lower in pH. So, All right, he's got two other go. things. He said fall versus spring application. <laughs> Obviously, spring would give me the best chance to, to utilize all that nitrogen. Is there any issue this late in the year that you'd worry about the nitrogen? Where are we at? Where was East it? East central Iowa. Well, if the ground isn't frozen, which I question, if the ground isn't frozen, uh, I mean, I'd definitely be putting it out there. We're always always, always putting our map and DAP out in the fall. I think we've missed one fall in 40 years. So get it out there in the fall because that phosphorus is not going to be instantly available. It's going to take just a little bit of time. We want to get that broken down, especially for us. We're in a drier area than what you are. But yeah, I have no concerns at all. And the other thing, it's a tiny amount of nitrogen. To think that you're going to lose it, I seriously doubt that because there's likely organic material out in the field that's going to end up tying up a little bit of that nitrogen in the short term anyway. I I think you're going to be just fine as long as the ground's not frozen. If it's frozen, you're done till spring. I'm not sure. Okay. Thanks for the question, Michael. We appreciate that. I'm not sure I read this next question right. This is from Gordon. He said, I have these Roundup-ready beans that I keep spraying with Roundup, and they aren't dying. What's the problem? Right. <laughs> I, I saw the same question. I'm like, I don't understand I'm going to have Darren read that because I don't know if I get it. Well, uh, obviously, if they're Roundup-ready, they're not going to die. Yeah, hopefully, that's uh, he's just giving us a hard time. <laughs> right. Uh, if you got a real question, Gordon, and just type something wrong, you can send it in. Uh, this one comes in from Pete. He said, I got sorghum. And I'm going to do 30-inch rows. What do you recommend I'd put out there for a pop-up type fertilizer? Without having any information on yield goal, on what the soil fertility level well, is, on when you're planting, that's a that's a very difficult question for it, us it to is. answer. It and, is, and that's the whole thing. We'd love to have more information to be able mm-hmm. to do that. But if you said, you know what, I'm in a low fertility situation, do you think I'd gain anything out of some pop-up? Sure. 
But yes. how long is that pop-up going to last you? If you're just if we think about the term pop-up, well, you just want to get things started. That's it until your plant's able to find where the rest of your fertility's at out in the soil or gets a big enough root system to explore enough soil to get the food that it needs. So just a really low-rate product uh, using something with a little tiny bit of NP and K and some micros would be wonderful. Yeah, but honestly, a lot of sorghum is planted where it is warm and dry. So the when, when you use the phrase pop-up, there isn't as much call for that. I get it when you're planting in the super cold soils. We often talk about 40-degree soil temps, and we want to plant super early with corn, and we want to help that seed get out of the ground a little faster, so we use a, a low rate of a low-salt product, and that works. I think you're dealing with something different here. I think this conversation isn't as much about popping it out of the ground as it is about just feeding the plant. And if we're talking feeding the plant, we don't really like it in furrow because you can't put as much fertilizer there. What I'd prefer is if you ran two by two, then you can run more fertilizer. The other side of this is if let's say you have lots of livestock and you've been hauling lots of manure and you've done everything to have just tremendously high levels of NP and K and micronutrients, well, then putting more fertilizer out there with the planter isn't going to do you a whole lot of good. And that's the reason why I say for us to make some blanket recommendation without seeing your soil tests would be kind of irresponsible on our part. But those are some of the things that we would consider and we would take a look at. If you're going to do anything in furrow, always, always, always keep in mind low rate, low salt, and then to spread the fertilizer out a little better, throw some water with it. That'll help basically safen it, spread it, give you a better response as well. Okay, thanks for the question, Pete. Um, this one comes in from AJ. In no-till, why are soybeans yellow? And where you work the ground, like where there were ruts, tracks, or sloughs, the beans are always greener and taller. Plus, it seems like they never catch up. It has to affect yield where those beans turned yellow. What do you Actually, think? it doesn't have to impact yield. We, we have been stunned by this as well sometimes. I can just tell you when we first started no-tilling and, and doing strip-till then later, our dad was really concerned with that no-till because everything was behind. It was slow. It looked more yellow. And we'd get to the end of the season, and in, in it would yield just as much, and in some cases more. So there are a lot of things for you to consider there. I, I guess the first thing is why are we having the yellow beans? Is it just because stuff is slow, or do we have something else going on in the field? Is it iron deficiency chlorosis? Do we need to get the drainage addressed? Do we need to do what we can to reduce the pH, to get nutrients in balance, to reduce salt or sodium and things like that? So it, it's hard for us to give a, a, a blanket answer there. But I, I would say when you work the ground, you have it black, you're going to have more heat. And a lot of times that's going to make some of these nutrients a little more available real early in the season, like phosphorus, for example. So, yeah, I, I, I guess I, I'm just I, I'm a little bit at a loss exactly what we're trying to solve here. Let me let me talk about one other quick thing, though, because as soon as I heard you say ruts and things like that, it got me thinking about where there is iron deficiency chlorosis. Sometimes in the wheel tracks, you'll see the beans be greener. So the question is, why are they greener in the wheel tracks? Is it just because we have uh, gotten rid of some of the air? We don't have, we've maybe, well, I, I don't know exactly entirely what it is and why we would have greener beans in the wheel tracks. But here's the thing. I don't know anybody that's actually studied it to say, all right, did we get more yield there? Yeah, we made the plant look greener, but did we get more yield there? That I don't know. Maybe it was worse. 
<laughs> so it needed fewer nutrients. So that's why it wasn't yellow. I don't, I don't know. That, that's a great question. I can just tell you with iron deficiency chlorosis and the yellow beans we often talk about in our region of the country, the problem is the high pH. Since the pH is over 7, the good ferrous iron can turn to ferric iron. And even though your plant will get iron in it, it doesn't get the right form. So literally, you'll test the leaf, and it'll say you have iron, but it's not in the right form. It's in that ferric form, and you have yellow beans. All right, thanks for the question. Um, I got a, got a couple of them here from Adam, and he said, I'm down in southern Kansas. I emailed you guys a month ago with some soil fertility for organic wheat questions. Loved your insight. My next question has to do with storage of organic wheat and managing bugs, since I can't use chemicals and, and those types of things to protect against it. So I got a good friend down in Oklahoma. Uh, he's tried turning the grain, blowing hot or cold, dry air through the bin with fans, harvesting it 11% moisture, and, and a few other things. He can slow down bugs but not stop them completely. I thought about using a grain vac system to, to really circulate the grain in the bin and potentially apply an organic liquid product which should kill any bugs or eggs on contact. It does need to make contact, though. Uh, what do you guys think about that? And then also, what would you suggest for a bin or silo system? Should I seal it up like something like a harvestor or just have like a regular bin? If we're just trying to store grain, no, you're not going to use a harvestor. You're, you're going to use a regular grain bin. You're going to push air through it. The biggest step that we would tell you is you've got to have that bin perfectly clean and then kill all the weeds on the outside of it, do everything you can to get it as sealed up as you can, and then you're, you're pumping air through there. We'll talk more about it right after this break. Stay tuned. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. What does it really mean to provide the best crop nutrition? With AgroLiquid, you're getting a one-of-a-kind approach, one that caters to your specific agronomic needs. You're getting a crop nutrition plan that maximizes your fertilizer applications from every drop, all while accounting for your management practices and the products you're already using. But it's not just a product. It's peace of mind, knowing we've thought of everything. That's the AgroLiquid way. Apply less, expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. You have a lot at stake when it comes to raising corn. I'm Darren Hefty. That's why on Wednesday, January 17th, we're holding a free Ag PhD corn agronomy workshop at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. We'll help you navigate all the challenges of corn production, including how to manage exploding pest populations, resistant diseases, fertility challenges, and more. It's a day packed with information. So if you want to get the most out of your corn this season, don't miss the free Ag PhD corn agronomy workshop. Register now at agphd.com. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Can you predict the future? I can't. That's why when I'm planting soybeans, I treat with Heads Up Seed Treatment. With more than 15 years of research, Heads Up offers proven protection against both white mold and sudden death syndrome. So no matter what the year throws at you, you've already taken that first step to be prepared. 
Don't let your beans suffer from disease when they're just starting to look their best. Tell your seed dealer you need Heads Up Seed Treatment. Learn more at HeadsUpST.com. How can Naturals products help you raise bigger and better crops? Hi, I'm Darren Hefty. Biologicals, or naturals as we call them, are impacting every facet of agriculture today, and that will only grow in the future. That's why we're devoting a full day to our Ag PhD Naturals workshop, Wednesday, February 7th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. Our research team has spent years testing hundreds of naturals products, and we want to share with you what we've learned. For more about this free event, go to agphd.com. Because the challenges you face are getting bigger every year, BASF is committed to helping with more than boots on the ground. We're committed to boots in the mud, boots on the steps of your truck, your tractor, your combine, the linoleum tiles of your coffee shop, the concrete of your co-op, the gravel in your shed. So we can listen, learn firsthand, help right now to ensure success. BASF, helping you do the biggest job on earth. Thanks for listening today to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, along with my brother Darren, right before the break. We were talking about a question with organic wheat and storing it bug-free. Well, the problem is the question came from down south where it's hot. And so here in our geography, a lot of times with grains that we're going to handle, our solution to bugs is we freeze them and then they're dead. That's fun. But you know what? You're not going to be able to do that down there. And as far as not using any chemical to kill them, yeah, I don't know of any organic solutions that there are. If you found something that you can spray on, great. That's awesome. But like I was saying right before the break, the the number one thing we're always going to talk to everybody about with grain storage is you've got to make sure that bin is ready to go. So in other words, there isn't a bug in that bin. There isn't a speck of dirt in that bin. You've got the weeds out taken care of outside that bin. You've got the bin sealed up as good as you can, and you're ready to go with your fan system, and you can blow air through, and you can get the grain to the right moisture. But he was talking about all these different steps, and you know what I got to thinking about, Darren, was why don't you just sell the grain right away and not store well, it or thought, not store it very long? I thought about that too. Let's get rid of the grain right away. The other thing is if you've got a liquid you can put on, you put it on as you load the bin. Yep. Because Then, then you get the coverage. Yeah, because here's what I'm thinking about. He said, oh, I'm going to harvest the grain extra dry. Okay, well, that means you lost money. I'm going to uh, put it in the bin, auger it, you lost money, and hurt grain quality. I'm going to re-auger it or run a run it through a vac and and cycle it okay now you've hurt the grain quality a little more and cost yourself more money so i'm just thinking about what all the costs are here how long do you actually need to store it or are you ahead within the first couple of months to just get rid of it and then you can certainly hedge on the board if you think things are going up or whatever i'm i'm just saying that that's one of the first things i thought of when i heard that question All right. Well, thanks for the question. We do appreciate that. Um, Got this one in from Charles down in South Africa. Oh, hey, hey, by the way, sorry. Let me me step back for just one second. If it wasn't organic wheat, what we do in all our bins before any crop goes in the bin, we've done the cleaning and, you know, maintenance and all the stuff. But 
the extra step is we'll do a combination of tempo and malathion that will spray on the floor and on the sidewalls up as high as we can reach. That's all we do. We, we never put some super harsh chemical in there on that grain. So once we've cleaned it properly, we've prepped the bin with tempo and malathion, then we're in pretty good shape. Okay, sorry about that. All right, that's fine. We got a question that came in from Charles down in South Africa, and he sent in four soil tests here. He said, I've got a cornfield here divided into four plots. CEC is pretty low. Uh, curious what you guys think on soil fertility and what you do. Okay, so, yeah, I had, I just highlighted a few things here real quick. Cat exchange capacity is unbelievably low, one or two. So this is pure sand, pure sand. So the first thing we always look at on a soil test is soil pH. You get soil pH at 5.5, so that's too low. So you're going to need some lime. The type of lime you want is going to be dolomitic lime because your magnesium level is really low. So I'm putting dolomitic lime out there. That's what I'm going to do. And then the next thing, we start looking at the P and the K and everything. Well, phosphorus, he's got like one area, okay, 129. But then you see much lower levels there as well, so 45 and... Uh, let's see. Yeah, 50. So anyway, you're going to need some phosphorus in some areas. And, and like where you're at 129 parts per million in phosphorus, that's great. That's awesome. But don't ever forget about the phosphorus to zinc ratio, which needs to be roughly 10 to 1. The phosphorus to copper ratio, which needs, which needs to be roughly 30 to 1. And it doesn't have to be exactly those numbers, okay? That's just general ballpark. Gets you at least half ways close. So let's say that your goal is to be somewhere around 100 on phosphorus. Well, 10 to 1 means you need to be at 10 parts per million on zinc, and you're at 1 or less. You'd need to be at roughly 3 parts per million on copper, and you are at 0.1. So I'm going to look at those micronutrients as well. And then when you have pure sand, you're going to have to be continuing to add the leachable nutrients like boron, sulfur, nitrogen, like literally every time you're going across with a pivot you or however you irrigate, you've got to throw some more nutrients out there. And then even be thinking about potassium. Your potassium level is really, really low, under 100 parts per million. You need to add potassium. And so normally in heavy soil, potassium isn't leachable, but in crazy light soil like that, it is leachable. So yeah, it's not going to leach near as fast as nitrate, but it's still going to leach out. So you've got to keep adding potassium as you go through the season as well. So those are the things that I see. Hey, thanks for the question. We really appreciate that. So it comes in from David down in Oklahoma. He said, hey guys, love your show. I've got some light soils and I'm sending you in some soil samples here. I'm planting corn next year. I want to push for 200 plus bushel, which is not the norm in Northeast Oklahoma here. I've played around a little bit with the recommendations uh, on Midwest Labs website, and I've applied over the three years, over the years, three tons of poultry litter per acre annually to this ground. This coming March, I plan to take samples again to get a snapshot before planting starts. Just wondering, is there anything else you guys would see on my samples I should be addressing? Sure. The first thing that I see is lots of variability. So, for example, within that poultry litter, I'm sure you've got potassium in there. Well, you have one area in the field that's 407 parts per million of potassium. I love that. You got another area that's 92. And it's it's the sample that's right next to it. <laughs> so, variable rate could really help you out. You don't have to be quite as high as 400 parts per million, but you cannot be as low as 92 parts per million. That's not going to be real helpful for you. And as it turns out, your phosphorus is at one of your highest points, your P1 phosphorus, 68 
where you had that really high potassium, where you had the really low potassium, you were only at 14 on the phosphorus. So I just say, you, whether it's commercial fertilizer, a little more poultry litter, whatever, however you're going to get it out there, you've got to get more fertility in some of these spots. So the cation exchange capacity, by the way, is in the range of 7 to 11, so it's lighter, so definitely lighter soil. So you're all, you've always got to be focused on the, the leachables, nitrate sulfate boron, but then like we're, we we talk about this all the time, the the copper, the zinc, some of these other micronutrients, you got to get those up at least a little bit. Your zinc is two parts per million, copper one part per million. Boost those up just a little bit. You don't have to spend much money. Just get a little bit out there. That's going to help. And then the last thing that I'll throw out, and usually we address this first, soil pH, you got a 5.8, you got a 5.9. Those are certainly not bad. I'd probably throw just a splash of lime out there, but in that light soil, you do not need much. With light soil or relatively light soil, you want your magnesium level to be higher. So you probably want it 15 to 20, somewhere in that range percentage-wise. Your magnesium levels are pretty low all throughout the field, 7 to 10% base saturation magnesium. So if you ever add lime, it's probably going to need to be dolomitic lime. And you may even consider throwing some magnesium out some other way, like magnesium sulfate at some point during the season, to try to give your crop a little more magnesium boost. All right. Well, thanks for the question. I got this one from Travis down at Kansas about nitrogen efficiency. And this is, this is a good question here, Travis. He said, I'd like to hear what you guys think about the effect of different soils on nitrogen efficiency in corn. A couple of years ago at a Neil Kenzie seminar, uh, <laughs> he suggested varying your nitrogen based off base saturation magnesium. He had several ranges from optimal at about a pound per bushel of nitrogen to the higher mag levels requiring a pound and a half or maybe more. I tend to think it really makes some sense. And I've been including that in my nitrogen script. Just curious, have you guys noticed anything with your high mag soils and your nitrogen needs? Honestly, we haven't proven or disproven that. We just haven't studied that enough. We have some high magnesium levels for sure. We've been able to get higher yields. Do I feel like we have to put on lots more nitrogen? No, but I'll, I'll put it this way. I don't think we're ever running short on nitrogen. We try to make sure that we've got pretty good levels out there. Uh, so that's a, that, that is a big deal for us. I, I mean, I just felt like when I've, when I've read the stuff from Neil, it just, it feels extreme and I didn't pull it up here quick because we're right at the end of the show today and I just didn't have time to get it pulled up. But I'm going to say with high magnesium level, he wants roughly 50% more nitrogen out there. I, I, I think percentage is probably pushing it. Where I'd go with this is, you know, because you think even 10, 20 years ago when Neil was probably learning some of these things, I mean, we were shooting for a lot lower yields. So I don't know if you need that much percentage, but to have a little bit more when you have high magnesium, that's certainly possible because you may get a little more tie-up. Uh, things don't move as well in the soil. You have more compaction, stuff like that. So that may have something to do with that. But yeah, I, I, I guess just don't run short on nitrogen. Keep testing, run some tissue tests, run soil tests, and just continue to try to prove whether it works or not, but I'm I'm with you. I, there there's a lot of a uh, lot of good stuff Neil comes with, and I'm certainly not going to doubt what he says. Well, thanks for all the questions today. We really appreciate that, and thanks to you for listening. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.